This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. The New Hampshire primary, the first six votes have been cast. Many others, but the first six votes went to Nikki Haley in this little town in New Hampshire. On the Democratic side, there will be a write-in campaign. We're going to be talking with John Nichols about that, but not just a write-in campaign for Joe Biden. Yeah, that too, but there's a vote ceasefire. People are being told to send Joe Biden a message uh, by writing that in. So what do you think is going to happen in New Hampshire? Uh, Will Nikki Haley pull out a victory? Um, Will Donald Trump? You know, he didn't win in 2016. Um, So his campaign is not dependent upon a win here. But many people say that Nikki Haley's campaign is dependent upon a win. I just saw Dean Phillips. Hey, AM 950 Radio up in Minneapolis. Uh, he is the congressman from Minnesota who was running, and he said, you know, you don't understand there's a lot of voter suppression happening up here. Um, people, The Democratic Party has told people not to vote. I cannot wait to get him on the show. I'm going to start reaching out to him today to talk about his experiences there. And he made the point that this conversation that's been generated by the presidential primary on the Republican side is dormant on the Democratic side. That is not good. So let's pay attention to New Hampshire today, and I want you to know that I love you today. Coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 radio, Voice of Progressive Minnesota. Call us at 773-763-9278. 773-763-WCPT. I'm dedicating the show to a lifelong friend today who I will be speaking about, who I will be talking about uh, in the next hour, Dexter King, uh, the youngest son of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and Mrs. Coretta Scott King. Many of us who knew him, even knew him well, were shocked that he died of cancer yesterday, only 62 years of age. I'm going to talk about his life and also talk about the stressors uh, that he had to live with on a daily basis. Uh, It it is not lost on me that many of the children of the martyrs of the movement or uh, children of parents uh, whose parents were very, very involved in the movement, many of them die young. Medgar Evers' son did not make it to 50. Ralph Abernathy's son did not make it to 50. Yolanda King had just turned 50 when she died. 62 years of age is quite young. Um, and I just want to talk about that. Um, it was a heck of a thing. When every single day of your life, you don't know if your father's going to be alive at the end of it. When people call you for dinner to tell them they're going to bring your father's dreams out. I live like that every single day. And when they knew what he was wearing, so you were scared for your father to come home, all of that. It adds up. And many of us are dealing with those kind of stresses in our lives every single day, and it shortens the lifespan. So, upon my love to you, Dexter, you are on the other side, um, making merry with your mother, your father, your sister, uh, your grandparents. So many people who loved you and so many people you have loved. Of course, you've had up the King Center and have done so much to really help the 
keep that pool together. So we'll be talking about him. We'll be talking about the vote ceasefire write-in campaign up in New Hampshire. And we'll talk about this Oxfam report that shows that we are on track to get our first trillionaire, even as we will not be wiping out poverty for 229 years, even as poverty has exploded all across the globe. I'm Santita Jackson. Let's get to the headlines on The Santita Jackson Show. An attack in southern Gaza killed 21 Israeli soldiers yesterday. The soldiers were rigging buildings with mines when a grenade hit a nearby tank, triggering the mines and collapsing the buildings with the troops inside. The Supreme Court said wire along the Texas Mexico border can be removed. U.S. Border Patrol agents can get rid of a razor wire Texas official. Uh, Texas officials installed along part of the border while legal challenges continue according to the court's orders. A bitter divorce battle could determine the future of Trump's future of Trump's uh, Georgia case. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is accused of having an inappropriate relationship with the lead prosecutor in the election interference case and the allegations which Willis hasn't commented on have led to calls for her removal and may have damaged the case against the former president and 14 others. And of course, today, the New Hampshire presidential primary taking place. The decisive win for Donald Trump could show up the Republican nomination so early, though. And it could force his last challenger, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, his former U.N. ambassador. Perhaps she will reconsider her future campaign. The last poll closed at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. We will see results to start trickling in soon after. The first six votes cast early this morning were cast for Nikki Haley. Is it a harbinger of things to come? Everybody, we're going to have a high of 34 degrees today in Chicago. There will be snow. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 33 degrees. And in the NBA, the Bulls 113, the Suns 115. They were triumphant. The Hornets were triumphant over the Timberwolves, 128 to 125. And in the NHL, Chicago was shut out by the Canucks. And tonight, the Wild will be facing off against the Capitals. We will have more news throughout the day. But now, let us to the good news with Pastor uh, the Anointed, the Pastor of New Covenant Missionary Baptist Church, Stephen Thurston. How you doing, Pastor Thurston? Had a wonderful time with you and Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams and your beautiful family. Your parents, they honored your mother. Boy, you put on a show. Everybody came in to church in their finery in the snow and cold. Yes. I, I, I haven't seen this many sequins as early since last Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we had a good time, and it was made even more special because you're present. So thank you for coming. Thank you for supporting us always, as you always do. Thank you, Cindy. Oh, oh, oh new covenant. It's my family. Get out of here. So, yes, <laughs> so there we have it. There we have it. And Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams gave us a word. What a blessing. Um, yes. on the support system, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, so wow. crucial, so critical, so key uh, to us moving forward as a collective community. We all need at least that one person that's going to hold us down <laughs> as we navigate this thing called life. And so she uh, spoke to us about that and helped us tremendously. Absolutely. Made me develop an even greater appreciation of all that your mother has done down through the years. Without complaint, yes, and um, yep. we just thank God for Mrs. Joyce Thurston today. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for your many, many years of service, reminding us that she served alongside her husband. Being the first lady is not um, an honorific, it's not a decorative position. It is a real, real thing, everybody. When the pastor yeah. gets that call at 3 a.m., so does she. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and guess what? That note on that church, she's liable for it. It's all of those things. But she is also the mother of the church. There's just so much, and we just thank God for you and the service that your family have have rendered to our church community for nearly 100 years. So what is the good news today? Oh, we love you. We love you. We love you. What's the good news today? The good news today is that we can manage our memories. So when it comes to our past and our memories of painful experiences, some are repressed while others are dissociated. Uh, repressed memories are those that are deeply hidden in our unconscious because they're too threatening to face. And this association happens when the abuse is taking place as we refuse uh, as we engage in alternate thoughts or images to distract ourselves from the pain or the horror of what's happening to us. We've heard the stories of people being in very tragic and toxic environments, things happening to them mentally and even physically, and they'll try to just escape, put their mind in a different space while it's happening. Well, here's why that's important to know. In adulthood, we end up unconsciously repeating our parents' or abusers' behavior towards our spouse or our children, and it's done as a way of legitimizing our past and making it more bearable to ourselves. We've we've heard it said before that hurt people hurt people, and I'm just trying to unpack that a little bit for us today. And, And this actually prolongs the damage that's done to us as we go through the process of abusing other people. Have you ever stayed in a relationship in which you were being mistreated? That often happens when the familiar is more valuable to us than an escape from it. Let me say that again. We will often stay in abusive relationships, abusive spaces, toxic environments, when the familiar is more valuable to us than an escape from it. And when we're being abused in an adult relationship, we may feel powerless to change or escape. That powerlessness, it's a memory of the past when we were too young to escape the hand of abuse. And since the connection between love and abuse happened in childhood, when we couldn't leave home, when we didn't really have a voice or enough power, we may still feel trapped, even as adults, and believe that love brings staying with an abuser. And we may still believe the myth that it's acceptable for someone to love and hurt us at the same time. Love is being used to endorse abuse. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. Sometimes love can only happen from a distance. I'm just trying to speak to somebody who finds themselves in a painful place in an abusive type of relationship. I know you're connected to them. You're related to them. There was a loving experience that may have kicked off that relationship. There's your family. You share the same last name. You share blood relation. Let me say it again. Sometimes love can only happen from a distance. Yes, memories last, but memories of abuse, they don't have to keep hurting us. And we can address, process, resolve, and integrate them through the process of grief work. Sad memories may remain in us, but only as sharp that's too deep to be excised, but no longer harmful to us. 
Listen, fear can induce us into despair that things for us will never change. And I get it. Often I need to repeat an abusive past is stronger than I need for healthy relationships. But this can actually be a positive in, in a weird way. Here's how. Positive in the sense that subconsciously we believe in first things first, meaning that we believe we're obligated to finish old business before we can approach new business, that we've got to end this thing before we can proceed into something brand new, something fresh. In math, I was a math major for a period before I switched over to sociology. I remember there's something in math called an algorithm. And an algorithm is solving a math problem by repeating an operation. And perhaps this transference that we're experiencing of bringing our past into the present, perhaps it's taking place in our lives, in our human computations, like an algorithm, that we repeat something until we feel it solved. And I want to encourage us today that we don't have to stay stuck sitting at that desk trying to finish that math problem for too long. We look at our past. We look at the pain of our past. We learn the lessons from that, and we acknowledge it to then move forward so that we don't keep repeating that past and perpetuating the damage that was done to us onto someone else. Yes, the memories are there, but I want to encourage us today that the memories can be managed. We don't have to allow them to have power and control over us and keep us in this this stuck space, this dead space, this unproductive space. I want us to live, to have life more abundantly. And that means we're going to have to manage those memories and move beyond those memories to a more healthy space and place in life so that we don't continue to perpetuate those problems and that pain onto someone else. That's the good news today. You can manage that memory that you're having. That is the good news today. That is the good news. You don't have to live in that pain. You can have a triumphant experience because of it. You can get over. You can go walk through it and um, and get to the rest of your life. Pastor Stephen Thurston, New Covenant Missionary Baptist Church, how can we worship with you? You can plug in with us on our website, which just recently shipped our domain name change to the Cove, C-O-V, the Cove, Chicago, dot org. You can plug in there. We're streaming there. Or you can go to our YouTube page or our Facebook page, the Cove, Chicago, or New Covenant Missionary Baptist Church. You can use both of those to find us. Catch this past Sunday. You want to hear Pastor Tish Dixon with him. She was amazing. Gives you a new look on the life of Mrs. Job. Oh, gosh, she was great. And so any of those three platforms is where you can connect with us and find us Sunday, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. If you're in Chicago, we love having guests. So pull up, show up. Uh, we welcome you to be with us. And, hey, and meet him on at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time on Facebook every Friday. You will be That's right. I, will, I love you, Pastor Thurston. I love you, love sure, you, love you. Too. And thank you for being with us today. Yes, ma'am. Let's move forward. I love you, Pastor Thurston. Dr. Shanina Knighton, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Nancita. How are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind today? Just want to take a couple of minutes to remind people about um, environmental cleaning 
So when they're cleaning surfaces, the importance of proper contact time. Many may not realize it, but we're wasting some of the products, the commercial products that we buy from off the shelf. What I mean by that is, is on the back of the bottle, there are directions for use. We automatically and intuitively will pick up the bottle, we'll turn it on or turn to the spray nozzle and we'll just spray it and then we'll wipe, okay? When we spray and when we just wipe, what we are missing is, is on the back of the bottle, there is something called contact time. If you are not allowing your solution to come in contact with the surface, that means sit on the surface for the proper amount of contact time, then you're not killing the bugs that you need to. And in fact, you're actually not effectively using the products that you're buying. So it's important that if it says on the back 60 seconds contact time, the contact time that it has to come in, let's say, connection with that surface, it must be there for that amount of time in order for you to get what they say on the bottle, which is that 99.9%, it kills bacteria and viruses. Otherwise, the product cannot be guaranteed to do what it needs to do if it is not properly being used. So I want to say that first. The other piece is, is let's say you have a rag and you're cleaning, let's say, one surface. So you spray something on a rag or you spray something on the surface. And let's say the table is huge or the surface is big and you're constantly using that same rag to wipe down. At some point, you begin to spread germs instead of kill germs. So if you're not making the proper contact time and you're using that same rag on multiple surfaces, at that point, you have been not killed germs, but you're spreading germs. So on the back of the bottle, there's going to be what's called a proper contact time. And it'll even at times let you know the amount of surface that it can cover at a time. I've seen it happen to where someone will, let's say, dip a rag in a bucket of soap. And then they'll go around and they'll wipe around 30 tables with that same rag. At some point along that route, instead of cleaning, you're spreading. So just want to remind people, proper contact time for cleaning products, disinfectant or things that you would use on the surface is essential to making sure that you are removing viral particles, bacterial particles, and fungal particles from surfaces that you are attempting to get clean. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Shanita Knighton, you don't want to spread those germs. You want to eliminate them. Think about that contact time. And well, just very quickly, I got about 10 seconds. Is it better to use to clean the paper towels over the rag? It is best to clean with paper towels or what we call single use towels. So somebody might use shop towels, which are not necessarily paper. They may use something that is more of a disposable grade, but it's not necessarily cloth. So, yes, I do agree that something that is a one-time use would be better. 
However, I do also understand that not all the times they are economical. So it is very highly cautious. Do not wash stuff down with a rag and leave a rag sitting in a bucket. Bacteria does grow in water and, in fact, can put you at higher risk. So that is why single towels are recommended instead of the ones that can sit in water and brew bacteria. Dr. Shanina Knighton, everybody. Hey, Dr. Nina. Hey, Dr. Nina. H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Think about keeping things clean today. Let's talk about this report from Oxfam that shows that sending you so much love, Dr. Knighton. Poverty will not be eradicated for at least 29 years, but we are on track to get our first trillionaire. The explosion of wealth of billionaires has been unreal, particularly during COVID. So what does that mean? The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. How do we we combat that? First of all, let's understand that it's happened. We're going to be talking about Dexter King at the top of the hour, the son of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who made his transition at the tender age of 62. And then the natural primary. There is something going on on the Democratic side. Let's talk about it. Back with more of the San Peter Jackson Show in just a moment. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. At the top of the hour, we'll be talking about the life and legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as lived by his son, Dexter King, who died yesterday. At the tender age of 62, so many of the children of these martyrs and of these people who dedicated their lives to civil rights have died quite young. He joins that list. His sister was about 50 when she passed. Medgar Everson was about 48. And on and on and on. They die so young, but there's so much stress that they live under. Dexter would always say, you know, I'm not a celebrity, although we've been celebrated. We're servants. And... um, yeah, celebrity is can be fun, but when you're servants, you really do pay a price, and he did that. We're going to talk about this right-in campaign on the Democratic side and the New Hampshire primary. But first, let us talk with brilliant economist, President Emeritus of Bennett College for Women, former Dean of Ethnic Studies at the University of he said, what school were you, were you just, that you just left and you just dropped them like a hot oh, Cal state, Cal state LA. Cal's got to have fun with you. And, of course, a noted author and just the head of Push Excel, she along with uh, Judge Greg Mathis. There's so much that she has done, and we're so grateful for her service. When I heard about the story, uh, the study from Oxfam, I said, mm, we've got to talk about this. I mean, we've seen, they said, it'll take at least 229 years for us to eradicate poverty. Uh, but there has been a, an explosion. They called it a, super, a supercharged surge in extreme wealth in the U.S. alone. Billionaires are 46% richer than they were in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. The three wealthiest men, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Larry Ellison, have increased their net worth, everybody. Get this by 84%. Have any of you 
felt that? Of course <laughs> you haven't. And so that, when you find out, uh, although America ranks first as the richest nation in the world, Dr. Melrose, um, nearly 40 million of us live in poverty. Now, we're not talking about those of us who live on the edge of poverty. What does this report say? I mean, 229 years to resolve, uh, to resolve poverty, but we're about to get a trillion, a trillionaire? What? Well, you know, Santita, trillionaires are billionaires and not billionaires because they're brilliant. They're billionaires because government policy has made it easy for them to accumulate wealth to the detriment of the rest of us. And inequality is worse in the United States than it is any place else in the world. Number two might be South Africa. Um, and we know what the story is there. But what, what, ha- what has our government done to make it easy for the rich to become richer? First of all, they have... Um, basically imperiled worker rights. It's harder and harder for workers to have their rights and fair wages. The minimum wage in the United States is still $7.25 an hour. It has not raised now for 12 years. Uh, taxes, the taxes, the tax system has been tilted, if not rigged, to um, assist the wealthy. So you have, I would love to see these billionaires' tax returns. So many of them pay so little on their taxes, so little, uh, because of the loopholes and the orange man loopholes, the previous president loopholes, made the situation even worse. Now, uh, any of your listeners, you and I can all attest to this wave of privatization. So stuff that used to belong to the public now has been sold off to the private sector. Some of our roads, some of our toll bridges, um, our schools, the privatization of our schools. All of those things have concentrated wealth in the hands of you. And then finally, the climate story. Who really is, we keep talking about, you know, the climate, climate change, et cetera, but it hits some populations harder. It's much more difficult for them to survive. So these things that our country has done has made the wealth concentrated. Uh, about 50% of us in the United States only owe 2.6% of our nation's wealth. Half of us own 2.6% of our nation's wealth. So what? Yeah, we have not really talked about economic rights. We talk about all kinds of rights, human rights, but we need to talk about economic rights. So, you know, basically, if we regulate it more effectively, that, which would mean that polluters would pay a bigger share for their taxes. Others would pay a bigger share. But we don't. We basically allow billionaires to purchase politicians who then go to Washington or to their state house determined essentially to um, elevate the wealth of the wealth, of the, the fair share of the wealthy. Um, one of the other things, I mean, shareholder capitalism, which is where Market shares, um, essentially, you're, you're, you're basing the vitality of a company on their short-term market shares, or not market shares, stock prices. So you see how we have this obsession. Stock went up by two points. Stock went down by two points. Meanwhile, that undermines the ability of smaller businesses to deal with long-term growth. And so we could regulate differently to liberate businesses from shareholder capitalism. 
And, you know, then we have to basically talk about investing in public service and public goods. When we look at the amount of debt that young people incur, not just young people, I have colleagues who are just a few years younger than me that are still paying off their student loans. The Obamas didn't pay off their student loans until they got to the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think when, maybe when Barack got his book advance. But anyway, they didn't, you know, they were very successful black people, but they still had student lingering student loan debt. So if we invested in public service and public goods, college would be free. Training, post-secondary training would be free. And you all were just talking about nasty rags in the schools. Our public schools would be nicer places, more comfortable places. You would have children uh, on top of each other doing half shifts because and, and antiquated, antiquated schools. There are schools, I, I coined this line in a speech perhaps 20 years ago, Santita, when I said there were schools as old as me. And that time, that time I met 50-year-old schools. I can still still say that, and I'm 70. We still have buildings that are not wired. So if we invested in public service and public goods, the public, the collective, then we would probably have less of a concentration of wealth. Now, you know, I'm not mad at rich people. A lot of people talk about class envy. You're mad at rich people. No, we're not mad at rich people. But there's something called a fair rate of return. What is it? It's not doubling your money in five years. Eighty-six percent increase in wealth in, in just since the end of the pandemic. Not even five years. Four. So basically, the report lays this all out and looks at inequality. What separates us from European countries is that most of them have very strong worker rights. You look at the UK, you look at France, you look at Germany, they have very strong worker rights. Their unions are strong. Here we've so weakened our unions that they're almost a joke. Once upon a time, about a third of our population belonged to unions. Now we're looking at something along the lines of 12% at at so the the Oxfam report, they, they issue this report every year uh, at the eve of the World Economic Forum, which just uh, was take, taking place in Davos. And they issue it because what is the World Economic Forum? It's a gathering of some of the world's wealthiest people. You get into World Economic Forum if you're wealthy, if you're a country leader. Uh, occasionally, some academics slide in, uh, especially if they've written about wealth. I don't know any of us who've been. I tried to go a couple of years ago. They told me no. Um, I think they thought I was going to start a protest. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah. They, um, no, no, no. But no, if you support the status quo and the world order, you go to Davos. If you are a populist, you cannot get into Davos. You're outside of Davos protesting Davos. Let's, let's let people know what Davos really is. And they talk about population control and so forth and so on. There's a lot that is discussed there that really controls the world agenda, and yet we can't get into Davos. No, I had two people actually, uh, one was the CEO of a large corporation, who told me he was going to nominate me against his better judgment. And um, But we talked about it, and he said, well, you know, if, if you come, will you behave? I said, to the best of my ability. And uh, he did. I, mean, I saw the letter he sent, but they said no. Dr. Malvo was not a suitable participant. Oh, well, um, as I told him, I've been kicked out of better places. Um, but back, back to... I mean, Dr. King would have been let in. That's all right. I mean, it's okay. 
And uh, I admit it didn't hurt my it didn't hurt my feelings like you said. Rejection is your protection. Um, but I I just out of curiosity and as an economist, I'm like, see, I'd love to be able to go, but. Um, Neither here nor there. Back to the inequality. They, they release it at the eve of the World Economic Forum because they want to point out what inherently is wrong with these kind of gatherings and um, how inequality basically defines um, our country in particular, but many of the other countries. I had the privilege uh, yesterday for my radio program of interviewing Nabil Ahmed. He's the director of economic and racial justice at Oxfam. And he um, called uh, what he called this was a decade of division. And he, the, the um, economic divide is getting greater and greater. And he compared um, today with uh, the post-World War II era, where after the Great Depression, the United States in particular and many other countries were determined, you hear me, determined to um, basically temper capitalism. Uh, the top tax rate in the 1946 in the United States was 94%. That's what uh, the wealthiest are paying. Now, if it's 10%, we're lucky. So basically, we've come a long way. Hmm? Let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that we need to change our language? I've even heard a progressive like Elizabeth Lauren say that, you know, when it comes to college, you need to pay something. And yet in really progressive countries, countries that are seeking to move forward, they say, no, we're going to invest in you. Precisely. So you will come back home. I mean, so maybe do you think... Changing the language, Dr. Malvo, would be helpful because it's not that you're educating people for free. You're educating them so they can become contributors to the society. Yeah. You're so educating them not for free, but not for free, but for the future. You're educating okay. them for the future. And so, when, you know, that, yes, we should change the language. We should talk about investments in people and how investments in people essentially lead to economic prosperity. Investment in systems, systems like uh, public education, like public transportation. I mean, when you look at some of the places, Santita, where people are going, uh, working in these lower wage jobs, and if they go from one part of town to another, I know this is a case. I met a woman in Chicago recently where she has to change the bus three to two times. So she mm -hmm. takes three buses to get to her to her job. And so that's another hour on top of her day if the buses are running on time, which they often are not. So an eight-hour day turns into a 10 to 12-hour day. What does this mean for the quality of her life, for which she'd be able to invest not only herself and her own development, but also in her children and in her community? If you're working like that, you don't have time to volunteer. I mean, you're basically working, going to sleep, and working. Maybe you get to church. So we have basically fractured the notion of community. And you know why we did it, in my mind? It had a lot mm -hmm. to do with race. I believe that as black people got more and more access, other people created ways to limit access. Look at the changes people have to go through to vote. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a little town today in New Hampshire. They had a story about the town is tiny. I think it has six people who vote there. But it's oh, they, far, so they voted, it, these were the first people to vote this morning, right? Right. At the, at their polls open at midnight. And um, mm -hmm. the reason why they have this tradition is because where they are is very rural. 
It's very far, it would be an hour or two, from the large, closest, larger town. I say larger, nothing as big in uh, New Hampshire except for maybe uh, Portsmouth. Um, but in any case, they... Um, but the, so whoever founded this tradition said people shouldn't have to go that far to vote. Now, on the other hand, in parts of Mississippi, you have to travel as many as 50 miles to get to a polling place. So we basically have fractured the notion of what a community is like. And in doing so, because a thriving community also requires public investment. It just doesn't thrive on its own because somebody woke up some morning and said thrive. People have to be intentional about that. And we have been very intentional about inequality. We essentially have normalized inequality. So that it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be that communities basically survive by putting parking fines on poor people or having very high um, vehicle registration rates. These are all things that contribute to the inequality. And this is micro inequality. The macro inequality is as you led out with these, the five richest individuals doubled their wealth. Double. So what happened during the, so what, what happened during COVID? I mean, because there was this explosion of wealth at the top, they made more money, more money. They were talking about Jeff Bezos becoming a trillionaire at the beginning of the pandemic. Now you don't find mom and pop stores anymore, Dr. Malvo. Now you got to go. When I go to the dime store, I'm not going to mention names. I can't find half the products, but if I pull out my phone and go on Amazon, mm-hmm. it's all right mm-hmm. there. They have taken everything off the shelves. The concentration of life and the, and the dime store, the mom and pop store, often can't get the supplies that they want because the Amazons of the world, and it's not just Amazon, they're the best buys, they're, they're bunches of them, but Walmart, they've taken the stuff off the shelves, uh, off, the, off the distribution chain for themselves. And then the smaller distributors can't find things. It, it, again, it's about concentration. Uh, years ago, and I've been looking for this article forever, and I'll probably never find it, but if one of your listeners remembers, mm-hmm. listeners remembers it, I'd love to see it. It was an article that talked about when the uh, Fortune 500 became uh, 400, and when the top five Fortune companies purchased a European country. Purchased a European country. Now, that's far-fetched. It was kind of science Science fiction. It was in New York Magazine back in the nineties, but it was um, it, it was preempted to where we are now in terms of uh, basically predatory monopolies, just like the proposal that JetBlue and uh, Sprint Airlines, is Sprint or Spirit, yeah, Spirit Airlines, should merge. Mm-hmm. No, they they claim they would create a large low cost airline. How long do you think it was going to be low cost? We've seen this happen time and time and time again. Monopoly power is basically uh, predatory, and it puts the consumer at a disadvantage. But there's so many things these days that have put consumers at a disadvantage so that people have to hustle just to try to keep up the number of Americans that are holding more than one job, even as we have jobless. You know, you've got... I had a school teacher yesterday, actually, Santita. I had to go to the dentist. And the lady who picked me up was lovely, and we chatted. And um, when she gets off teaching, she hops in her lift and says she tries to make a couple hundred bucks 
just shuttling people around because she makes so little as a school teacher. Imagine that. You know, I don't have to imagine. I'm seeing it all the time. I'm getting, I'm getting picked up in Uber by people who are driving Mercedes Benzes, and I'm not mad at them. I'm not going to say you shouldn't have a Mercedes, but your life is going Mercedes well, and then you have a little bit of a hiccup, just a little bit, and you are up a creek without a paddle. But the wealthiest, it doesn't happen to them, Dr. Malvo. They're getting wealthier and wealthier, and their wealth is exploding while we are imploding. What what questions should we be asking in 2024 in this election season? We should be asking our legislators what they think about economic rights. We should be asking them about privatization. We should ask them about why they won't raise the federal minimum wage. Why can't you raise the federal minimum wage? Now, I'll tell you, half of the states have a higher wage, but you know our states in the South where our people are concentrated have lower wages. One state, I think, has a, and I can't remember the state, so I won't call it, a wage as low as $5 an hour. $5 an hour. Um, And again, with privatization, jobs that used to be good jobs. You go to the airport, you know, the baggage handlers used to work for the airlines. Now they work for some private company, and they don't make that much. Um, you go to some of our office buildings, our, our federal office buildings, and we used to have federal janitors, so they were covered by civil service. Now that service is contracted out. So basic privatization is a big issue, and we need to ask about it. That's a question that people should be asking their legislators. We should ask them about the language shift that you mentioned. Um, why can't we have free college? Why can't we invest in our young people? Not just college. That's a classist kind of way of looking at it. We also want free vocational uh, education. Uh, Investing in young people is investing in our future. I'm really frightened for the plight of younger people and um, what we're doing to ignore them. And when we ignore them, guess what? They ignore us. Mm. And you see the rise in elder abuse. You see... um, People in their 80s being mugged. Um, there was once a reverence for elders, but elders don't have reverence for youth. And that's how that's playing out. But the Oxfair report is a great report, inequality. Uh, folks, check it out. You check it out. It's, it's, the executive summary gives you most of the information, but it's a non comprehensive look at inequality, not in the United States, but in the world. It's getting worse in the world, but the United States is the worst of the worst. Very quickly, what are our economic rights? Reverend Leon Sullivan talked about making the shift from civil rights to civil rights. Reverend Jackson picked that up through Operation Breadbasket, saying that, you know, look, you can get at the Woolworths counter, but you can't afford to buy the meal. You need some civil rights. We don't have those. What are, just give me top three economic rights that we should be demanding. The right to work at a living wage. The right to affordable housing, the right to uh, accumulate and invest, um, as, as black people were denied that right during enslavement. So to work, to be housed, and to uh, have the opportunity to invest and or grow your business. Who is against that? On paper, nobody. In practice, almost everybody. Every time you see, um, as an example, every time you see a tightening of regulation, you're basically talking about attacking uh, poor people and people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, by the fact, you know, before COVID, you had to get an interview to get your food stamps. Then during COVID, they suspended it. They didn't find any more fraud. But they're now reinstating that requirement. Um, You must go in to get an interview to get your food stamps. How inconvenient and how unfair. Yeah, but, you know, these billionaires and trillionaires seem to be can get, they just get loans. Whether I mean, that's why, you know, I look at a lot of what they're charging Trump with. I kind of look askance at it because all of these guys get a chance to assess how much they, I mean, the, the real estate assessment game is a game. It's a game. They just, you know, they decide that this is worth X amount of dollars. They all do it. But you're not allowed to do it. I know at least one black I'm saying saying that's the way the game is set up, Dr. Malcolm. You and I both know that. But, 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 Peter, I know of at least two black men who spent spent jail time for doing... No, 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 no. We're not talking about them. Hold on. When you're black, you know, you pay a black tax. You better do it right. Otherwise, you're going to prison. Well, yes, no, I, yes. No, 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 that's different now. Hold on. And, and maybe in, in baseball, I'm just saying, they could do that's something. That's the game. That's but the see, game. With, with Trump, any game, any game that gets played, he, he makes, he, he's egregious. It's not just that he's playing the game. When you hear 10,000 square the game as it's, so he's doing the game as it's. 10,000 square foot apartment is now 30,000 square feet, and you made a minor error. That's why the judge ruled against him. I think if he said it was I'm not defending okay. him. I'm saying this is the game. It's the game. And people ought to not be mad. Don't be, don't be mad at the player. Be mad at the game. The game disfavors you. Anytime as a black homeowner, you got a million-dollar house, but you got to get your white friend to come in to pose as the owner so you can get the proper assessment, it's the game. And we ought to be sick of it. That's happening down on a low level. <laughs> Crazy. Dr. Julianne Malvo, how can we catch you on the radio? Monday morning at 9 a.m. WPFWFM.org. You can also find my columns on JulianneMalvo.com. And in the Crusader here in Chicago. Thank you very much. That's right. Don't, don't you sell us short, Dr. Malvo. We love Dr. Julian Malvo here in Chicago and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and all around the country. Go get out of here. Keep trying well, to tell you got a network. <laughs> I'm on a network. I will talk to you soon. I'm running to the gym. Take care. I love you, Dr. Malvo. Let's talk about Dexter Let's King, everybody. Oh, boy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's talk about him. Oh, boy. Person. Very my friends, but I'm so glad that I've had them in my life. So let's talk about him. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, 
everybody. Welcome to the San Peter Jackson Show. It's a joy to be with you today on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. If you want to know all that's going to be happening at the Democratic Convention, you need to stay tuned right here. And then, of course, AM 950 Radio. They've had Dean Phillips, their congressman, running for president. He gave a tremendous interview on CNN. I urge you to watch it. And um, we're going to be talking about that uh, primary tomorrow, and we will also be talking about so many things, but today we're talking, we've been talking about the wealth inequality, the wealth gap, the Oxfam study talked about, it takes 229 years to eradicate poverty, but we are, we are on track to get our first trillionaire. How does that happen? How is it that we've had an explosion of billionaires during COVID? Mm-hmm. Think about it. When you go to your favorite dime store, they are under-resourced, but if you go to Amazon, everything is right there. Mm, talk about concentration of wealth. Then we'll be talking with John Nichols about this write-in campaign in uh, in New Hampshire right now on the Democratic side. But first, we're going to be talking about Dexter King, our beloved brother, and I say our beloved brother because my beloved sister, the daughter of Reverend Dr. Ralph Abernathy and the iconic Mrs. Juanita Abernathy. She's with me today. And so after we get to the headlines, we're going to talk about our brother, Dexter, who made his transition. He is now with his family, with his sister, Yolanda, with his mother and father, grandparents, with her father and mother, and so many people who have loved him and who have been angels on his shoulders down through the years. Let's get to some of these headlines. The New Hampshire primary began today. The first six votes were cast for Nikki Haley, but what's going to happen for the rest of the day? A decisive win for Donald Trump could choke the Republican nomination, according to this Washington Post report, and force his last challenger, Nikki Haley, to consider the future of her campaign. We will see what's going to happen after the poll closes at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Supreme Court said wire along the Texas-Mexico border can be removed. U.S. Border Patrol agents can get rid of razor wire Texas officials installed along part of the border while legal challenges continue, the court ordered yesterday. A bitter divorce battle could determine the future of former President Trump's Georgia case. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Wilson is accused of having an inappropriate relationship with the lead prosecutor in the election interference case. Mind you, she has hired three of those persons, three, but they've only been looking at one. The allegations, which Willis has not commented on, have led to calls for her removal and may have damaged the case, but we don't know yet. Everybody in Chicago, we're going to have a high of 34 degrees, but we will have snow. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 33 degrees. It will be cloudy this weekend. The Division Championship weekend. Who is going to the Super Bowl after this weekend? We will know. In the NBA, the Suns are triumphant over the Bulls, 115 to 113. The Hornets were triumphant over the Timberwolves, 128 to 125 in the NHL. Chicago was shut out by the Canucks, two to nothing, and the Wild will be facing the Capitals today. And those are the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. I'm always so blessed to talk to this woman who, um, I tell you what, when she told me, you know what, let me tell you when I met you. You were sitting on your mother's lap, your brother Jesse was in her arms, and she was pregnant. I almost passed out. I said, who could remember my mother pregnant? And that was almost 60 years ago. But she does because we go back a whole lifetime. Many people do not know 
that while Reverend James Devil brought my father to SCLC, his champion within, I guess, the just the people who ran SCLC was Reverend Dr. Ralph Abernathy. He just saw my father as this young, uh, energetic organizer, and he wanted to protect him. And so I'm so grateful to the Abernathy family for their love and for their protection down through the years. And so when I heard that Dexter King, the youngest son of Reverend Dr. Martin Sr., had made his transition, of course I had to call my sister beloved, Don Galay, an actress of tremendous note, an actress of tremendous note. We have seen her down through the years, and I have always cheered her on. Whenever you would be on television, Don Galay, my mother would shout, we had an intercom, you know, telephones, oh no, she'd stand in the middle of the house and shout, Don't go on television! She'll come here, come here, come here! Now everybody had a TV, didn't matter. We were all going to sit there and watch you on TV. Oh my God! So excited, and my mother, you know, who is always been artistic, she would say, Look at how intense she is. You can tell she studied. Look at that, look at that. Oh my goodness. My mother, I've got to call Juanita, I've got to call her. But she was in Murder, Mississippi. You saw her in LA Law. You've seen her in so many, many, many shows down through the years. She's absolutely beautiful and brilliant. And um, I'm just grateful to have you today. I'm so grateful that I've had you in my life for someone upon whom I could call down through the years. And um, But it broke my heart to have to call you yesterday. Um, couldn't believe <laughs> that Dexter... The object of all of the affection of all the young, you see, you two, you just, you're four years older than Dexter. But for those of us who are a little younger than Dexter, we all saw him and fell in love. Oh, my gosh. He was like our first big movement crush. But he was legitimately <laughs> like Hollywood handsome and all of that. And was a really wonderful, down-to-earth guy. Um, yeah. And... Um, he was just, he, was a, he would always tell you, no, I'm not a celebrity. He said, celebrities are celebrated. He said, we don't, we don't do the red carpet. That's not what we do. We're servants. Tell us about, um, well, when you got the news, I mean, it's just so, it's so stunning. And Dexter at the tender age of 62, and many of us didn't know that he'd been struggling with cancer for, for more than a decade. Down the lane. So, oh, Santita, I'm I'm devastated. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your show this morning. And uh, just to bring a reflection about an absolutely amazing and beautiful man. Oh, my God, Santita. Um, I received a text message yesterday um, from Dr. Jennifer Harper, who uh, was dear friends with my sister when we moved to Atlanta. And so subsequently she met Yolanda Yoki. And so Mm -hmm. we became this little bond and we'd ride our bicycles from our house to Yoki's house and Jennifer would ride with us. And then as we got older, the friendship just continued. And then Yolanda used to go to New York and visit Yoki. And then uh, Jennifer would tell me that Yoki's coming And so I would go, and we all, you know, be together with Jennifer in New York because my sister Wandlin had moved to Germany. And so Jennifer sent me the text. And when Jennifer sent me the text and I read, I knew it was true. And I just, 
I just started sobbing, and I immediately called my sister on first on FaceTime, and I said, Wanlin, Dex is gone. She said, what? I said, Wanlin, Dex has died. And then together, we just started sobbing. And I just started sobbing uncontrollably. My sister was in the midst of a class in Germany, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop weeping. And I was with my brother's fiance and my sister's son who had come from Germany and was staying here with us. And I just, I lost control. I mean, I remember when Dexter was, when Uncle Retta was pregnant with Dexter Mm. before Dexter was born. And then I remember when Dexter was born and the way it was in our life was Dexter and my brother, Ralph, the third shared the crib together. And then uh, Wandlin and Yoki would sleep in the bed together because uh, they had shared the crib together. And then I would sleep with Martin, uh, Martin Luther King III, because we were the same age and we shared our crib together. And then we would sleep, you know, you put little children in the bed together. So I would sleep with Martin. And, um, yeah, and so I've always known Dexter. Dexter and Ralph III were such great friends that not only did we, you know, go to school together, and they were always, you know, one class um, uh, separated them, but they played football together. My brother Ralph would be the running back, and Dexter would be his blocker. And Dexter, you know, when he was little, he was a little chubby boy, but he'd run Mm -hmm. fast, and he would say, okay, Ralph, I got you. And together they did their thing, and then when they went to college, they were roommates in college. And so um, the way my brother Kwame says, he said, you know, Dexter was uh, Ralph III's road dog. You know, Mm -hmm. they were ride-or-die brothers, and and that's the way they were. That's, you know, that's the world that I knew. And uh, and Dexter then moved to Los Angeles, you know. Um, I moved to Los Angeles, so Yoki said, I'm coming. So then Yoki moved. She sold her house in Atlanta, and then she moved to Los Angeles. And because Yoki had moved, then Dexter decided that he was going to move. And, uh, you know, I'd see, I'd see Yoki more regularly because she decided, listen, we're going to go to movies together. We'd go to theaters together. We'd do all these things together. And, and Dexter was more reclusive. But then we'd meet, you know, uh, sometimes in the city. And, uh, and uh, whenever Ankaretta would come and, uh, you know, we'd have gatherings. We always had these family gatherings. And, uh and then uh, I, I remember talking to him on the phone. I'm like, Dexter, when are you going to invite me to your house? Uncle Retta had told me that you have this fabulous house up there in Malibu. He's like, well, Don, so like, well, and at that point, he was starting to become more and more reclusive. Mm-hmm. And then last night when I was leaving, um, leaving Bernice's house, I, um, I kept Dexter's message that he left me about the death of my brother. And he had called my mother and my family, and they said, Don's Liz having a hard time, and I was. I lost it. I couldn't handle it when my brother died. I, I, I was standing, and when I found out, all I could do is drop to the floor. I didn't, my legs buckled from under me. Anyway, Dexter called, and he left me this beautiful message. He said, I'm here for you. I can tell I'll talk to you and and I kept it and I played it last night and 
Mm, the love that he had for my brother and the love that he showed to me and the compassion all those years. And I'm, um, I don't know what to say, Santita. He was just a special man. He was so elegant, so kind. He was an artist, Dexter, you know, and, and he, of course he had, you know, a commodity you know, who was so sometimes overwhelming because of his greatness, especially as the years passed after he died. He became so great. But, uh, you know, Dexter ever so often would call me and ask me questions about our youth and about my memory because I'm older than he was. And um, those things were special to me. And I... um, I just can't believe he's gone. So young, so fast. And uh, cancer know, is a terrible thing. Yes, tell me, please. It, no, 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 no. It is a terrible thing. But when I look, your brother passed away very young. He was not yet 60. Medgar Evers' son, Medgar, was not 50. Yolanda, had she just turned 50? Just um, turned 50. I think a lot of people don't realize the, the role that, the accumulative role that stress plays in your life. Um, right. Many people look back look back on the civil rights movement and it looks very glamorous. You know, most of the marches that we were on down the way, there were not a lot of people there. Um, in real time, our fathers were quite controversial and they were hated. In real time, you said, you know, as a daily ritual, because I know we endured it too, you lived with armed security around your house. You had someone who was going to call and tell you what your father was wearing and say they were going to blow his brains out if he came home for dinner. So while you wanted your dad home for dinner, you didn't want him to come home <laughs> because someone promised that they were going to kill him. And this is, you live with this every day. What is every that day. like down the way? I mean, what is that like every single day? You don't know that your father will be alive at the end of it. And then so then you, if your mother's late coming home, you worry about her. Your parents mm-hmm. worry about you. They don't want to take you out certain places because they don't want people to identify you with them. And what is that like? Oh, my goodness. Well, Santita, um, when we lived in Montgomery, you know, they bombed my parents' house when my mother was pregnant with me. So my mother hung the picture of the bombed house on the wall. And in Montgomery, they called every morning and then every evening and uh, called them the N-word and said they were going to kill them. And then... um, you know, the little one, that was devastating. But then when we got to Atlanta, they they continued to call, but they would call it dinner time. And most mm-hmm. often, Daddy was gone. And it would just be Mother and, uh, you know, the three of us, Wadlin, Ralph III, and me. And then my mother would slam down that phone. We'd eat the remainder of our dinner in silence. We'd run to the bedroom, finish our homework, take our baths, and then, you know, quickly get in the bed. Quickly get in the bed because we were afraid they were going to bomb our home again, you know, because they had made good on their initial promise to try and kill us. And so, you know, there was fear. And um, um, the um, 
Congress wanted to hear our testimony. And uh, so they did the three of us together. Ralph and I were together, and Wandlin was via um, um, uh, some kind of Zoom, but it was a big camera. We could see her. She could see us. And they asked us, what do you remember most about the Civil Rights Movement? And the first thing my brother said was being afraid. And, you know, as you get older, you try to push that into the back of your mind. But he mm-hmm. hadn't, he couldn't push it into the back of his mind. So he carried that weight with him. And uh, I had pushed it back. But I realized that every time I say goodbye, I used to say goodbye to my parents, to my dad. And it was on Monday morning. I would cry. Because, you know, because early Monday morning, he'd get us up ready for school, you know, because uh, he and Uncle Martin were going to be going on the road somewhere, and he'd make breakfast for us, and it was wonderful that that Monday morning, but there was this looming sadness because we were going to be saying goodbye to him for the remainder of the week, and I would just cry, and to this day... Every time I leave my family members, I cry. I have separation anxiety because it's like it may be the last time that I ever got the opportunity to see them. And so I still weep. And I'm in my 60s now, and I still cry. And it's like a a sore, an open wound that will not heal. And uh, growing up in trauma is not easy. It's not easy at all, but... uh, you try to make the best of it. I mean, when Uncle Martin and Daddy were around us, we felt safe. Mm-hmm. But when they were away, we were not. And then the way they set it up is we went to the same schools. I was telling um, Angela, who is Aunt Christine's daughter, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Christine King's daughter, last night, you know, that... Um, uh, I, I when we first moved to Atlanta, and we moved to Atlanta because Uncle Martin called every day and insisted that we move from Montgomery to Atlanta. And when we moved to Atlanta, my mother sent us to Spelman uh, College Nursery. And then Uncle Retta said, oh, no, the children have to go to the University Homeschool Nursery. And my mother was like, oh, okay. And I was really happy at the Spelman Nursery because they had a lot of land to, to play on, and it was nice and small. And then all of a sudden I was moved to the University Homeschool Nursery because Martin was there, Yolanda was there. And, uh, you know, and from that point on, we would go to school to the same schools every day together. We would come home from school every day together. And then on Saturdays, the girls, we would, in the morning, would have ballet at Spelman College. The boys would do football Dexter, Martin, and my brother Ralph the Third, and then uh, Uncle Martin and Daddy never missed one of their football games on Saturday, not a single one. And then, you know, we after ballet, the girls, we would go and get our hair done, and then we would meet in the afternoon for some kind of cultural activity that they had planned for the children that day. And then... Uh, on Saturday evening, sometimes we would see them. But on Sunday, we would go to our separate churches. And then after service, we would meet every Sunday for Sunday dinner. And then uh, the children would go home. The King children would go home. We would go home. My, sometimes I would go, go with my dad to visit the sick and the shut-in. And then every Sunday evening, Uncle Red and Uncle Martin would come to our house, and then Uncle Martin and Daddy would re-preach the sermon that they had preached that day, 
And, you know, then mother would send us to bed and mother would have cooked in and they would sit together as two couples. And then early Monday morning, my dad would have that breakfast for us. And then I would cry to say goodbye. Stay with me for a few more minutes. Because I, I really feel there's a connection between that kind of trauma. And um, Dexter, he was only 62. Your brother was 56, 57? 56. And Yolanda was 50. I mean, I just keep looking at the you know, cumulative stress. And um, and the trauma, because we all have the same reactions to everything. Every time we take our father to the airport, some one of us would end up going to the restroom. I'll be, I'll be right back. He'd go to the restroom and cry, because he thought that, you know, I put dad on the plane. We're not going to see him anymore. We might, we might not this to be it. It's, will this be it? Living that day, living every day as if this is it. It takes a toll, everybody. It really, really does. We're talking to Don Delay Abernathy, brilliant, brilliant actress and author and activist in her own right about our brother beloved, Dexter King. Made his transition yesterday. He is now with the Angels, with his family, and preparing a place for us. But um, we've got to tell his story, the story, back in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I'm Santita Jackson. It's a joy to be with you today. Call us at 773 763 WCPT 773-763-9278. If you want to listen to the show without any of the commercials, go to WCPT820.com forward slash Santita. WCPT820.com forward slash Santita Jackson. Santita Jackson. And you'll be able to hear this conversation, uh, the conversations we've had this morning with Dr. Julianne Malvo, with Reverend Stephen Thurston, with Dr. Shanina Knight, and conversation we're about to uh, unfold, uh, into which we are about to unfold, John Nichols. But I've been talking with my sister beloved, uh, John Nichols, uh, the daughter of Reverend Dr. Ralph Abernathy, and his wife, Mrs. Juanita Abernathy. Uh, Someone, an unsung heroine in our movement, every death threat people have to understand. She had to absorb the shock, interpret it to the children, and keep it moving. And they're all very accomplished Abernathy's, as were the kings, very accomplished young people um, at the behest of our fathers and especially our mothers. Uh, but we were talking about the stress because uh, so many of our, the people we grew up with, died young. Quite frankly, oh, uh, down the lane. And that's just not lost on me. Um, and, you know, every day you don't know if your father's going to be alive at the end of it. Every day. Many people glamorize these social movements, but they're not glamorous to live through down the lane. 
absolutely not. And they, you know, they don't understand. They think that you were uh, born with a silver spoon in your mouth, but they don't understand the sacrifices that were made for us to be free. And Uncle Martin's been gone only 56 years. So it's Mm -hmm. basically, you know, 56 years that we as a people, as a black people and brown people and Asian people and Native American people have enjoyed some modicum of freedom here in the United States of America. And so, Santita, because I'm older than you, so I was born in segregation. I was born in a segregated hospital. I grew up with colored water fountains. I grew up knowing that we couldn't go swim in the swimming pool. And Uncle Martin wrote that letter in the Birmingham jail, you know, uh, about Yoki's uh, face. But it was not just Yoki's face. It was my face and my sister's face and Martin's face when we found out that we couldn't go to Funtown because we used to see Funtown from the expressway. And I'm telling you, it was just devastating to find out that they wouldn't allow colored children. And so Daddy and Uncle Martin decided that they would take us to the Southeastern Fair in the evening. And that was supposed to compensate for it. And it did on a certain level. But then you saw what little white children were able to do, and and we couldn't do those things. And so it was, you know, not only did we have to live through the stress of what they did in the integration, but we also had to live through the stress of what, how white people were responding to us based through segregation and then through the end of segregation and the hate that kept coming out. But in the midst of all of that, we were taught you have to meet that hate with love and that you have to exercise nonviolence. And when we integrated that elementary school, Spring Street Elementary School, so It was uh, Yolanda and my sister, Martin and me, and my brother Ralph III, and then Dexter would come the following year. But those little children used to call my sister, Bosco Bear, this little boy, Carter, was trying to push her down the steps. Now, I was in third grade. I was eight years of age. But I, I, as little as I was, I went up there to Carter Yates, and I said, you push my sister, and I'll punch you. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be nonviolent. (laughs) <laughs> and then this little boy, Wesley, used to call me the N-word every single day. And uh, sure enough, um, my teacher, I went to my teacher, I said, why does Wesley call me the N-word? And she said, well, Don says it's because he loves you. And I said, Metallier, I know that Wesley does not love me. But then I remembered what my dad was trying to teach me and my mother. But my dad used to talk about it all the time, rising up above all of this. So I showed Wesley love. Yet, you know, there's that other part in you that wants to retaliate, but then your your higher self has got to guide you. And so that's what the world that we grew up in. And uh, and then we had to come home to the trauma, but we had the trauma at school, and uh, it was challenging. But I'm I'm a greater person today because I lived through that. I was able to endure it. And when I see young people today fighting because somebody dissed them or because somebody has, you know, they're flying a certain color, they're wearing a certain color, or they're in, the, in, the, in, the, in their neighborhoods and in their gangs, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, black child, brown child, you can't do that. I grew up in a world where we were trying to cling to each other because there was a white man who wanted to lynch us for fun on Saturday night. 
or terrorize us throughout the day. And no, you all can't fight each other. You need to celebrate life and you all need to come together. And you can't be fighting over nickels and dimes and quarters and tennis shoes. You need to fight the real fight. In order to fight the real fight, you got to get as much education as you possibly can. And then go to all the universities that you can, because now they've taken away affirmative action. But, but, but despite all that, you have got to be the best that you can be, because we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of 244 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow segregation. That's 344 years plus that our ancestors were told that we were less than and that there was some man with his foot on our throats telling us that we were less than. We can't be less than. We need to rise up, and we certainly can't hurt ourselves kill each other. And so, yeah, I mean, that's where I am today. Despite all the grief that I'm enduring with the loss of Dexter, the loss of my brother, the loss of Yolanda, I mean, it's, it leaves my mind lost, and, and I think, well, I have only a small amount of time left in this life, and therefore I have to, we have to make it stand for something. Maybe we can help and guide somebody. We can lift somebody up from the gutter. We can feed somebody who is home uh, hungry. We can give someone a home who is homeless or is the unhoused. But we have to do our part, and I think I have to do mine. Daddy did his part. Uncle Martin did his part. Santita, your dad did his part. He's still doing his part, and he's sick, yet he gets up, and he does his part. And we have to get up and do our part. I mean, not only because we are the daughters of, but we have to do it because we are the recipients of whether you are sitting in a classroom today or whether you're sitting in the gutter today. You've got to lift yourself up. This is the greatest time that we, our, our people have ever had in the United States of America and in the Western world that we know it. And therefore, we can't complain. We just have to be better and do better. And, 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 and build on what President Obama created. But we have to rise up. We cannot expect that white people are going to help us. There will be great white people along the way. But then there are the whole mass of them that are trying to swing the pendulum back the whole the other way, back to racial hatred. And then they're, they're critical of something called critical race theory, and they don't even know what it is, systemic racism and bias that they don't even understand. Or, you know, hearing dissenters say, we're not woke. Are you sitting? You don't even know what woke is. Woke is being aware that when your child goes out that door, your child needs to be aware that when they see a man with a gun or they see white people, be careful, be cautious, be safe, be aware, be awake. And then, you know, they try to twist it. And now they're banning books that are written by young black children. And I want you to know there's this young girl named Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman, I first met Amanda and her twin sister, Gabrielle, when they were five years old. They went to the school that I'm one of the co-founders of this school called New Road Schools in Santa Monica. And every year I would sit on the floor with Amanda, Gabrielle, and all the rest of the little children and tell them the story and the history of the civil rights movement every single year. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, I was invited to speak at the 50th anniversary of the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. And I found out that Amanda was the reason that I was being invited to her Catholic church to speak. And then when my arm was broken, 
I called Amanda and she said, oh, Donsley, I can't come and help you because I have to go to Harvard. And then the next thing I knew, she was standing there on the podium giving her poem for President Obama, for President Biden, because she had become the poet laureate for the United States of America. And as she used her hands when she spoke, I thought, oh, my God, I do that. Oh, my goodness, that little girl, that little girl that I had been with every single year from the age of five has become this prolific woman. This prolific woman. And so you never know who you're going to touch through the course of life and how far they're going to rise. But Amanda has risen. And now they're trying to ban her book in Florida. And I guess ban her book, which is a children's book. Ban a children's book. So, no, we can't go back. And that's what people are trying to do. And that's why we have to stop Donald Trump, who's trying to move us back. Because this is not about white power or black power. This is about the power of all of Americans coming together. And we need a president that unites us, not somebody who separates us. I'm sorry I got on my bandwagon about that, but I'm very passionate about it. John Nichols, does she cheat it up for you? Because now we are in the midst of the election, and there are a lot of discussions about which way to go. Well, she cheated it up very well, and, you know, Look, mm-hmm. let's think about what's going on today. We have a New Hampshire primary. Um, it's historically one of the starting points of the presidential race. And on the Republican side, uh, notably, uh, one of the candidates that was just mentioned, Ron DeSantis, is out of the running. And so maybe there's a little bit of hope there that the candidate who ran on all these assaults on critical race theory and all these complaints about people who are woke uh, was dismissed. He's out of the running. Uh, But Donald Trump is still in the running, so is Nikki Haley. And I wrote a piece today about one of the the subtleties of this race in New Hampshire that relates to what we're talking about. And that is that in the final days of this race, as Nikki Haley's pulled a little bit closer to Donald Trump, Donald Trump has unleashed a racist and xenophobic campaign against her uh, where he mispronounces and misstates her birth name where he makes a big deal about the fact that she is the daughter of uh, immigrants to the United States from India, Sikh Indian immigrants who came to this country, and even suggested that she might not be qualified to be president because her parents came here as immigrants. All of these things lies. All of this untrue. And yet all of it done to stoke racial and xenophobic divisions. I mean, even now, all these years later, We have a presidential candidate who is doing exactly, exactly what Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy and others fought to end, right? This politics still exists in this country. And one of the things I write about is the tragedy that Nikki Haley um, said she wasn't paying attention to Donald Trump's attacks. She said that, you know, know, I don't listen to him. I I don't pay attention to that. That's absurd. What she should have said is, this is racism. This is xenophobia. Even if you disagree with me, you need to help me to defeat this man. She could have built a coalition of responsible Republicans, independents, and maybe even a few Democrats. And she might well have beaten Trump if she had actually trusted the American people and said, let's let's take on this racism. Let's reject it. But instead, she was so casual about it, so dismissive. And, well, and I think this is one of the and, challenges and it, of our politics. 
And if she had liked herself, which is something interestingly enough that Vivek had called her out on when he used her ancestral name. I said, this is a family fight because he never he didn't introduce himself to the public as Vic. He said, no, I'm Vivek. That's my ancestral name. And she is tweeting, mistreating her name as a pejorative instead of saying, yes, no, my name is Nimarata. That's my ancestral name. Nikki was easier for my peers. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you why. But by yes, exactly. Her, right? I mean... You're so you, right. You and she spoke... You, yeah. Well, I was going to say, she spoke the other day about when she was a child and being the only brown child in her school or one of the few and that she was teased every day that she was not treated well. I mean, so she actually understands... The reality, right? She, it's clear she's not a stupid person. She's a wise woman, I mean, or at least an intelligent woman. And yet, even as she speaks about this, then in the next breath, she says, well, America was never a racist country. Absolutely, and, she said that. Which is, I mean, come on. How can you be running for president of the United States, asking the American people to trust you, and frankly, asking the American people to help you to build a coalition against Donald Trump in this Republican primary, and yet not speak frankly, not speak truly, not, not, you know, not take from your own experience and bring that into the politics of the moment. I honestly believe that if Nikki Haley had challenged Trump, said, look, what you're doing is the same thing you did to Barack Obama. You're trying to suggest that someone who is a child of an immigrant is not a part of this country. You're suggesting that someone with a different name, and remember how Trump used to always emphasize Barack Hussein Obama, you know, always trying to make his opponents the others, always trying to, to lessen them. You know, if she had said that and said, look, someplace we have to draw a line in the sand, and she could have said that as a conservative Republican and said, look, I reject this. I reject what Trump is doing here. Please help me to stop him. I honestly believe she could have been like John McCain. She could have had people in that New Hampshire primary come to her and say, look, we don't agree with you on everything, but we want to help you to, to mm-hmm. do this right thing. And I, I, I write a lot about it. Well, it's a tragedy. Yeah, she says yeah. if, if he beats her, he, she will, or if, she, if he beats her, she'll endorse him even with all of this that he has done to her. And then she also says if by some chance she became president, she would pardon him. I mean, this oh is God. not run. It's not opposing Donald Trump. She's basically running as a, you know, a, an ally. Uh, were you about to say something? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you have to stand on principle and you have to stand mm-hmm. for what is right. Um, there is the 14th Amendment, which upon which this this nation was founded, and you have to follow um, the founding fathers, the principles of the founding fathers. And Donald Trump has engaged in this insurrection; he led it, and he is mm-hmm. in violation. And you have to honor that. You also have to honor the history of our nation, which Nikki Haley is denying. And then you have to be. Uh, you have to stand on truth. And I believe that um, I don't support her at all. Um, and I, I think that she needs to call Donald Trump out for who he, who he is 
and what he stands for. And she has to admit the truth. And and that's the only way she's going to rise up. And if she did admit the truth, just like you just said, John, you know, all of these other um, because there are all these other Republicans that are are not racist. They would get Mm -hmm. behind her because there is a um, Donald Trump speaks to those people that are interested in racial separation. We have to remember that Donald Trump's father was um, a sheet wearing member of the Ku Klux Klan and was arrested at a Klan rally wearing the sheet, engaging in a fight. And so you have to acknowledge who he is, where he has come from, and what he has done. We also know that when he uh, had real estate in New York City in his apartment, he would always tag, have someone tag a person of color that was coming, and then they were denied uh, the right to live in his unit. So much so that court cases were brought against Donald Trump and his father. And so that that is a continuation of what Donald Trump was about then. It's what Donald Trump is about today. And you cannot pretend that it doesn't exist. And if Nikki Haley would speak to that, perhaps people like the Bushes would come behind her. Uh Liz Cheney might come behind her. There's a whole group of white people in America that are Republicans that are not racist and that would not stand, that will not stand behind Donald Trump. They might come for Nikki Haley, but Nikki Haley isn't honest. And then Nikki Haley has the audacity to say that the United States of America was never a racist nation. She lost me at that. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm going to support Biden, but she's got to speak the truth. Well, I I expect that. Because, you know, people tend to be white proximate, but not white actually. That becomes a challenge. And what she's playing a game, and it's a dangerous game, and it's going to undermine, and it's undermining her as we speak. I mean, look, Liz Cheney is no heroin debate. She voted with Trump 90% no. of the time. So this, this lifting up of Liz Cheney is mystifying to me, and I think it's foolish. Because they have a personal fight. Trump took out the establishment Republicans. That's her axe to grind, and that's between them. I don't care about that. What bothers yeah. me is where she is in terms of policy. What bothers me with Nikki Haley um, is where she is on racism and where she is. I mean, the games that she's playing are very dangerous. And then also what is unsettling to me with all due respect, everybody about Biden is the game, the game that he is playing on, on Gaza. And so there's something that's happening with this write-in campaign. Cause I'm like, how do we mm-hmm. end up with a write-in mm-hmm. campaign for the president in New Hampshire? Please explain what's happening and what, what they're be- and what Democrats are being asked to do. Mm-hmm. The New Hampshire Democratic primary, well, first of all, we just talked for a moment about the Republican primary, and it's likely that Trump wins in large part, I think, because Haley didn't do some of the things that we're just talking about here. I think she could have built a McCain-style challenge and actually potentially beaten Trump in that primary. I don't think she will. If I'm wrong, it'll be a good story tomorrow morning. On the Democratic side, the Democrats decided to take New Hampshire off the list, right? They decided that New Hampshire would not be the first primary state. They moved it to South Carolina. There was a good reason for doing that. South Carolina is a state where, obviously, it's more representative of the United States um, racially. It has a much larger black population. And also, um, it was in South Carolina that Joe Biden's 
2020 presidential race was resurrected with the help of Jim Clyburn and others. And so that's why they made that move. But New Hampshire went ahead with a Democratic primary anyway. Biden chose not to run in the New Hampshire primary because of this new schedule. That was a dangerous move. I think in many ways a foolish move because um, it opened up the threat that he could have a problem in that primary. But now what's interesting is there's been a, a, a write-in, a major write-in campaign launched, and I suspect that Biden will win the New Hampshire primary. In fact, it is possible that as a write-in candidate, Joe Biden will win the New Hampshire Democratic primary with as high or higher percentage than uh, Donald Trump wins the Republican primary. So there's news in that. There's something to be paid attention to. But one other thing that's important or interesting in New Hampshire is there are a lot of stirrings as regards Gaza. Um, both of the prominent Democrats that are running against Biden in the primary, Congressman Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson, the author, are for a ceasefire. There's also a campaign to write in the word ceasefire. And this is the interesting thing about the write-in ceasefire campaign. It's being run by people who I've interviewed who are supportive of Biden, who actually say, well, in November, I anticipate I'll vote for Biden, but who want to get him a message about the need for a ceasefire in Gaza. And this is, this is one of the kind of subtleties, one of the complexities of our politics. And, and I think many of us know that you can carry two thoughts in your head at the same time. You can be very upset with Joe Biden for his stance on Gaza at this point. I think it's fundamentally wrong. And at the same time think, well, I do probably want him to beat Trump in November. And so the write-in ceasefire campaign up in New Hampshire has tried to blend these ideas. We'll see how it does. I mean, I'm going to be watching tonight with a lot of interest, both on the Republican primary and on the Democratic primary, uh, because this is a this is a churning and complicated moment in our politics. And New Hampshire is a place where one of the, one of those places where we get a sense of where we're at. So a significant day in our politics. And I'm so glad that we could blend these different realities uh, and these different significant moments in our conversation today to talk about, you know, Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy, as well as the politics of the moment. That's what matters. Well, when you hear Don Delay, you hear that our fathers yeah. and mothers lived this when they came home. This was not... Yep. This, this was who they were, and they wanted us to know, and so the fight continued through us, in us, with us. Don Delay, I've got 90 seconds. My dear sister, beloved, what do you want to say? Um, all I want to say is, yes, I'm going to vote for President Biden. I wish there was a ceasefire. I don't believe President Biden is the person we need to address. We need to address Benjamin Netanyahu, and we need to address Hamas. And I believe that the people of Gaza, as well as the people of Israel, are willing to come together. They're not the ones that are trying to fight and kill each other. We've got to stop Netanyahu and Hamas. But yes, I will be voting for President Biden. And if I can, I'll get on the road and campaign for him because I believe he's a great man. And, and my friend Peter, I love yes. you, my dear. I love you. Oh, I love you. And I've got to have you come back, come back on so you can talk about the election. I mean, why not? I love it. <laughs> All right. And Sarah, uh, thank you so much. And I, oh, I receive I the nation you. every day online. It's a wonderful publication. Oh, so please. This is is a national correspondent. This is our guy. And we met him, Don Delay, uh, 
He was one of our earliest campaign workers in 1983. He was a kid. My parents almost adopted him. They were like, what is this child doing out here with us? Oh, my gosh. And we have been together a long time. Oh, yeah. Like your parents did to my parents. <laughs> well, we'll get back years to your parents. You oh, all take care. Have a wonderful, blessed day. All right. Love and Carrie you. Decker Love in your you heart. Well. Love you. Carrie okay. Decker in your Bye. heart. Love you, everybody. God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks.